Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, excited to delve into the deepest recesses of our literary collective unconsciousness. I mean, that's, I mean, that's just simply not true. That's just simple. I've started the episode with a lie. I am not capable of plumbing any collective unconsciousness, but I am capable of pretending that I am capable. Kelsey, who's a listener, sent me a link to Knitter's, uh, what's it called? Knitter, Modern Daily Knitting, where somebody wrote a lovely recommendation for obscure. So if you're a knitter and you're looking for something to do to occupy your ears while you're making a scarf or a sweater with sleeves of differing lengths or mittens that will go unappreciated by the people that you send them to, obscure may be the podcast for you. Now look, I don't have to convince you, you're already listening. But if there are any new listeners, any knitters out there among us, Welcome. I'm I'm just delighted to have you. It's a, it's a fine pastime. My wife is a knitter. I have often thought that knitting looked like a a way to spend a contented hour or so, but I have never bothered to learn. Instead, what I do is what I have done is jigsaw puzzles as we discussed last time. I am now off the jigsaw puzzle tip, although Beth, another listener who I met over the internet said that she's going to send me a new puzzle and i was i was very reluctant to accept the gift i mean it's a used puzzle she had completed the puzzle she's going to send it to me i was reluctant to accept the gift because the last thing i really need in my life is another obsessive uh, 40 hours where i'm staring down at a goddamn jigsaw puzzle at 2:30 in the morning unable to rest because the puzzle is not complete. But she offered, and I said yes, and I will keep you updated as to that. It's getting to be camping season. No doubt I'm going to go camping again sometime soon, perhaps with my friend Matt, who's responsible for my camping adventures to begin with. As I have discussed in previous episodes, including bonus episodes, I don't know when I'm going to go camping yet. It's still too chilly, but that will be sometime soon. All kinds of things are happening. My state, Connecticut, is opening up vaccinations for people in my age group in the next couple weeks. So I'm going to get vaccinated. And when I do, I'm just going to get out in the world and party. God, I'm going to party. 
And what that means for me is maybe an early bird dinner at a restaurant, home and in bed by 7.30, if I don't have a jigsaw puzzle to complete. So a lot of big doings going on here in the wilds of Connecticut. You know, that's just me doing some housekeeping. Oh, also one last housekeeping thing before I keep going. If you want, you can buy an obscure sweatshirt or t-shirt. I listed them on the Patreon page. Just go to the post entitled Obscure Swag. You can pick yourself up something. Just because I I thought it would be fun to have a squad, an ob squad. That's what I'm calling it, the ob squad. It doesn't really work. As a what do you, whatever you, whatever that's called when you when you fit two words together a portmanteau, but why not an up squad? Anyway, let's get into it. Right, chapter six. The big buddy is is uh, out there in the shed. He's asking himself the deepest questions of life. What does it mean to be alive? What am I? What is my purpose? Why should I continue to be when I am a monster, a blot on this earth? Well, he hasn't come up with any answers. Let's see if he does. Some time elapsed before I learned the history of my friends. It was one which could not fail to impress itself deeply on my mind, unfolding as it did a number of circumstances, each interesting and wonderful to one so utterly inexperienced as I was. The name of the old man was De Lacy or, or De Lacy. He was descended from a good family in France, where he had lived for many years in affluence, respected by his superiors and beloved by his equals. His son was bred in the service of his country, and Agatha had ranked with ladies of the highest distinction. A few months before my arrival, they had lived in a large and luxurious city called Paris, surrounded by friends and possessed of every enjoyment which virtue, refinement of intellect or taste, accompanied by a moderate fortune, could afford. (laughs) I do like that phrase, a moderate fortune. Um... Because it seems to me a fortune by definition is immoderate, otherwise it would not be a fortune. It would just be an accumulation of capital or money. And once it gets to a certain level, though, once it becomes a fortune, I don't, I I mean, it, it seems immoderate by definition. But I suppose there are different sizes of fortunes. You know, there's a difference between the guy or the gal who has $10 million versus the guy or gal who has $10 billion. We can say one is more moderate than the other, but both are fortunes. The father of Safi had been the cause of their ruin. Hmm. He was a Turkish merchant and had inhabited Paris for many years when, for some reason which I could not learn, he became obnoxious to the government. He was seized and cast into prison the very day that Safi arrived from Constantinople to join him. He was tried and condemned to death. The injustice of his sentence was very flagrant. All Paris was indignant, and it was judged that his religion and wealth rather than the crime alleged against him, had been the cause of his condemnation. Look, we see this all the time. I mean, classic Islamophobia right there. You know, here's this Muslim dude living in Paris. He says something the French government doesn't like. They're like, off with your head. Sucks. You know, and it didn't help things that he was rich. 
class resentment, religious bigotry. The next thing you know, he's thrown in jail and condemned. Terrible. Felix had accidentally been present at the trial. His horror and indignation were uncontrollable when he heard the decision of the court. He made, at that moment, a solemn vow to deliver him and then looked around for the means. After many fruitless attempts to gain admittance to the prison, he found a strongly graded window in an unguarded part of the building which lighted the dungeon of the unfortunate Mohammedan. Oh, God, I love that word, and I wish we would bring it back. I don't think it's offensive. I, I don't think that's offensive. It's just a great uh, anachronistic word, Mohammedan, right? I feel like Thomas Jefferson talked about the Mohammedans when he was talking about the Barbary pirates off the North African coast. It's just, a, it's just such a kind of elegant and picturesque word, Mohammedan. Oh, Makes me, I mean, I love it. I, if it's offensive, I apologize because I, I don't think it is. And, and if it is, I won't use it anymore. It's just, it's just an antiquated word that I like a lot. So the unfortunate Mohammedan who, loaded with chains, waited in despair. I mean, it just calls to mind like market bazaars and spices and, uh, and dudes walking around you know, muttering to each other and, uh, you know, enjoying that Constantinople sun there in the Mediterranean. You know what I mean? It just, it just, it's, I mean, I just love it. Who loaded with chains, waited in despair the execution of the barbarous sentence. Felix visited the great at night and made known to the prisoner his intentions in his favor. The Turk, Amazed and delighted, endeavored to kindle the zeal of his deliverer by promises of reward and wealth. Felix rejected his offers with contempt. Yet when he saw the lovely Safi, who was allowed to visit her father, and who by her gestures expressed her lively gratitude, the youth could not help owning to his own mind that the captive possessed a treasure which would fully reward his toil and hazard. Oh, okay, so now now it becomes problematic. <laughs> to put it mildly, now we have a problem. You know, when viewed through today's lens, or maybe any day's lens, I don't know. And it's surprising, actually, that Felix, who we know to be, he says, uh, the big buddy says, that when he met Safi, when Safi finally comes to visit them and her face lights up and she's angelic and then Felix looks at her and for a moment he was as beautiful as she was, right? Her radiance shined on him, his on hers. Like we know this ends up being a match that both of them kind of like or, you know, to this point they kind of like. But the idea that the Turk possessed, possessed a treasure <laughs> which would fully reward his toil and hazard, right? That the daughter is his to give and for, and it's for Felix to take and to even ask for is, you know, uh, rubs our modern sensibilities perhaps a bit badly. At least it rubs mine a bit badly, but let's see what happens. The Turk quickly perceived the impression that his daughter had made on the heart of Felix and endeavored to secure him more entirely in his interests by the promise of her hand in marriage, so soon as she should be conveyed to a place of safety. 
Felix was too delicate to accept his offer, yet he looked forward to the probability of the event as to the consummation of his happiness. Okay, there's a lot going on here. So Mary Shelley's basically saying, hey, Felix is a good guy. Hey, he's a good guy. Like he said to the guy whose freedom is dependent upon him, he said, you know, not for nothing, but I seen your daughter there. She looks kind of nice to me. And the prisoner, understanding what is meant by, hey, she looks kind of nice to me, is saying, oh, geez, you know, I can get out of here. I can get my life if I can just sort of, you know, wheedle this relationship. And Felix is going, hey, you know, hey, 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 I never said like, you know, I gotta, you know, you gotta do the thing. But gee, she looks so nice. And your freedom, you know, be so nice if you got out of here. You know what I'm saying? It would be nice, Mr. Turk, Mr. Mohammedan, if you could maybe do a little thing, a little that. And then the next thing you know, we're being consummated. And that feels like a deliberate word to me with happiness. It's just, it's interesting, and I probably overused that word, but I'm interested in it. I'm interested in the power dynamics going here because they feel very unbalanced, right? It just feels like, you know, if the jailer, and he's not the jailer, but he, you know, seems to be able to affect release, is putting conditions on the prisoner's release, that feels a little shady, a lot shady. All right. During the ensuing days, while the preparations were going forward for the escape of the merchant, the zeal of Felix was warmed by several letters that he received from this lovely girl, who found means to express her thoughts in the language of her lover. Wait, what do you mean, her lover? How They've never met. How can you say it's her lover? They are not in love. She's a bargaining chip. She's the ransom express her thoughts in the language of her lover by the aid of an old man, a servant of her father who understood French. She thanked him in the most ardent terms for his intended services towards her parent, and at the same time, she gently deplored her own fate. I have copies of these letters, for I found, this is the big buddy saying, for I found means during my residence in the hovel to procure the implements of writing, and the letters were often in the hands of Felix or Agatha. Before I depart, I will give them to you. They will prove the truth of my tale, uh, meaning you, meaning Dr. Frankenstein. But at present, Dr. Frankenstein, excuse me. I mean, let's get the pronunciation right. But at present, as the sun is already far declined, I shall only have time to repeat the substance of them to you. Safi related that her mother... Oh my God. So, okay, so now, it, just, just to continue this um, pattern that we've seen throughout this book. So now, Safi is relating through an acquaintance of her father to Felix through letter, which the big buddy is now copying and showing to Dr. Frankenstein, who is telling the story to Walton, who is writing letters to his sister, Mrs. Saville, and we are reading those letters, okay? Does that feel a little story in story to you, a little nested to you? It does to me. Safi related that her mother was a Christian Arab, seized and made a slave by the Turks. 
Recommended by her beauty, she had won the heart of the father of Safi, who married her. Interesting. Again, I'm using that word. But there's a lot going on here. The young girl spoke in high and enthusiastic terms of her mother, who, born in freedom, spurned the bondage to which she was now reduced. So her father, Safi's father, married a slave girl, and apparently, once married, she remained a slave. Born in freedom, spurned the bondage to which she was now reduced, okay? She instructed her daughter in the tenets of her religion and taught her to aspire to higher powers of intellect and an independence of spirit forbidden to the female followers of Muhammad. This lady died, but her lessons were indelibly impressed on the mind of Safi who sickened at the prospect of again returning to Asia and being immured within the walls of a harem, what? Allowed only to occupy herself with infantile amusements, ill-suited to the temper of her soul, now accustomed to grand ideas and a noble emulation of virtue. The prospect of marrying a Christian and remaining in a country where women were allowed to take a rank in society was enchanting to her. I'm going to keep reading, but we're going to go back. But first, like, I just need a break. I need a break. My head is spinning. So well, let's take a little break. I'm going to let my head spin a little bit on all of these peculiarities and details. And then we'll be back here on Obscure. We're back. Safi's relating her story to Felix. We are so far removed from the tale of the big buddy, it's astounding. But here we are, and I'm sure it will all come together in a bit. And there's a lot going on between, uh, I mean, there's issues of slavery and female independence and Christianity versus Islam, and all of it feels a little bit treacherous at the moment just sort of analytically treacherous. But we're going to keep reading, and then, and then we'll see. We'll see what, what we see. The day for the execution of the Turk was fixed, but on the night previous to it, he quitted his prison, and before morning was distant many leagues from Paris. Felix had procured passports in the name of his father, sister, and himself. He had previously communicated his plan to the former, who aided the deceit by quitting his house under the pretense of a journey and concealing himself with his daughter in an obscure part of Paris. Felix conducted the fugitives through France to Lyon and across Montseigneur to Leghorn, where the merchant had decided to wait a favorable opportunity of passing into some part of the Turkish dominions Okay. Safi resolved to remain with her father until the moment of his departure, before which time the Turk renewed his promise that she should be united to his deliverer, 
and Felix remained with them in expectation of that event, and in the meantime, he enjoyed the society of the Arabian, who exhibited towards him the simplest and tenderest affection. They conversed with one another through the means of an interpreter, and sometimes with the interpretation of looks, and Safi sang to him the divine airs of her native country. I'm just trying to decide whether to to stop here. I'll I'll keep going a little bit. The Turk allowed this intimacy to take place and encouraged the hopes of the youthful lovers while in his heart he had formed far other plans. He loathed the idea that his daughter should be united to a Christian, but he feared the resentment of Felix if he should appear lukewarm, for he knew that he was still in the power of his deliverer if he should choose to betray him to the Italian state which they inhabited. He revolved a thousand plans by which he should be enabled to prolong the deceit until it might be no longer necessary, and secretly to take his daughter with him when he departed. His plans were facilitated by the news which arrived from Paris. All right, let's just, I mean, I, I, I'm going to keep reading, but, okay, well, the chapter's almost done. All right, so this episode might get long. The government of France were greatly enraged at the escape of their victim and spared no pains to detect and punish his deliverer. The plot of Felix was quickly discovered, and de Lacy and Agatha were thrown into prison. The news reached Felix and roused him from his dream of pleasure. His blind and aged father and his gentle sister lay in a noisome dungeon while he enjoyed the free air and the society of her whom he loved. This idea was torture to him. He quickly arranged with the Turk that if the latter should find a favorable opportunity for escape before Felix could return to Italy, Safi should remain as a boarder at a convent at Leghorn, and then, quitting the lovely Arabian, he hastened to Paris and delivered himself up to the vengeance of the law, hoping to free de Lacy and Agatha by this proceeding. He did not succeed. They remained confined for five months before the trial took place, the result of which deprived them of their fortune and condemned them to a perpetual exile from their native country. They found a miserable asylum in the cottage in Germany, where I discovered them. Felix soon learned that the treacherous Turk, for whom he and his family endured such unheard-of oppression, on discovering that his deliverer was thus reduced to poverty and ruin, became a traitor to good feeling and honor, and had quitted Italy with his daughter, insultingly sending Felix a pittance of money to aid him, as he said, in some plan of future maintenance. Such were the events that preyed on the heart of Felix and rendered him, when I first saw him, the most miserable of his family. He could have endured poverty, and while this distress had been the meed of his virtue, he gloried in it. But the ingratitude of the Turk and the loss of his beloved Safi were misfortunes more bitter and irreparable. The arrival of the Arabian now infused new life into his soul. When the news reached Leghorn that Felix was deprived of his wealth and rank, 
the merchant commanded his daughter to think no more of her lover, but to prepare to return to her native country. The generous nature of Safi was outraged by this command. She attempted to expostulate with her father, but he left her angrily, reiterating his tyrannical mandate. A few days after, the Turk entered his daughter's apartment and told her hastily that he had reason to believe that his residence at Leghorn had been divulged and that he should speedily be delivered up to the French government. He had, consequently, hired a vessel to convey him to Constantinople, for which city he should sail in a few hours. He intended to leave his daughter under the care of a confidential servant to follow at her leisure with the greater part of his property, which had not yet arrived at Leghorn. Hmm. When alone, Safi resolved in her own mind the plan of conduct that it would become her to pursue in this emergency. A residence in Turkey was abhorrent to her. Her religion and her feelings were alike averse to it. By some papers of her father which fell into her hands, she heard of the exile of her lover and learnt the name of the spot which he then resided. She hesitated some time, but at length she formed her determination. Taking with her some jewels that belonged to her and a sum of money, she quitted Italy with an attendant, a native of Leghorn, but who understood the common language of Turkey, and departed for Germany. She arrived in safety at a town about 20 leagues from the cottage of De Lacy when her attendant fell dangerously ill. Safi nursed her with the most devoted affection, but the poor girl died, and the Arabian was left alone, unacquainted with the language of the country and utterly ignorant of the customs of the world. She fell, however, into good hands. The Italian had mentioned the name of the spot for which they were bound, and after her death, the woman of the house in which they had lived took care that Safi should arrive in safety at the cottage of her lover. End of chapter six. I mean, we're 26 minutes into this episode, and there's so much to talk about. Uh, like I said, this could get long, but I mean, the story was compelling, but bizarre. But bizarre. And I don't mean in the Turkish uh, merchant sense. I mean like in the crazy sense. What a crazy story. What an absolutely nutso story to insert in the middle of Frankenstein. <laughs> I mean, when you, when you think of Frankenstein, you know, just conceptually, do any of you ever think about this possibility that there exists within the body of Frankenstein, the novel, some crazy jailbreak featuring, you know, like people on the run in multiple countries and forced marriages and slavery and all of this stuff? Like, you know, like, I never thought of like, what? I never thought about this. Like, you know, this is why you read the book. It's why you play the game. You know what I mean? Like, you can you can put all the players on the different teams, and it can look like somebody's going to win and somebody else, but you, that's why you play the game. That's why you read the book. You know? How far we have traveled from our, my, initial impressions of what Frankenstein was all about. Now we're into a whole other weird dimension that has nothing to do with the central story here. Nothing to do with it. What a bizarre book this is. I mean, you know, nothing happens for 150 pages or whatever it is. I mean, you know, things happen pretty slowly. And then we get this tale, you know, this espionage's jailbreak tale 
involving Felix resolving to free this guy from a guy he does not know from jail. We have no reason. He has no reason to do this other than he feels there was an injustice. Okay. But he's willing to risk not only his life, but the lives of his father and sister to right this wrong. And if he is motivated by justice and justice alone, why then does he say to the injured party, hey, you know, not for nothing, I'd love to marry your daughter as a condition of of me releasing you from prison? Like he didn't know about the daughter before and the Turk had offered him money and jewels and property and whatever else for his help. He had said, no, 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 no. That's not what this is all about. But then suddenly he sees this pretty girl and he's like, but you know, not for nothing. I'd love to marry the daughter. And then the daughter seems amenable to this. But we have to question her motives. Like, the daughter's motives are not pure here by any stretch of the imagination, right? Safi is born to a slave, a Christian slave in Turkey. Her father had married this slave, did not release her from bondage. I don't know what the, I don't, you know, look, what do I know about slavery in Turkey in the 18th century? had this daughter, right, and apparently has a good enough relationship with, I guess, his slave girl daughter that she feels bound to him in some capacity. She's coming from Constantinople to help him. It's unclear to me what her status as a citizen of Turkey is. Is she born into slavery and is therefore a slave or because, or is she not? I don't know. I mean, I guess we have to assume she is free because of the conditions of her survival in Paris, and then later Italy. So, but she's born, she she rejects her religion. And I'm not going to like get into the complexities of whether or not women are entitled to an education in 18th century Turkey. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But her Christian mother raises her to believe in the tenets of Christianity. She accepts them, thinks if I can just go West, I could live my life as an independent woman there in the West. So she's like, great, that's what I'll do. She leaves Constantinople, goes to Paris. Her father is arrested. She's like, oh, God damn it, this sucks. And then she catches wind of this plot to release her father by this dashing guy. And she's like, ah, he wants to marry me. Great, I'll wed him, thus freeing myself, uh, if not literally, then kind of literally, from one form of bondage and entering another, which is the state of marriage to a guy I do not know and whose motives, I'm sorry, are fucking suspect as fuck. The hell is going on in this story? Now, as you know, I have been reading Frankenstein with an eye towards um, gender. We know that Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, big feminist. We assume, we don't know because I, you know, I, like it says in modern daily knitting, you know, I, when I read these books, I don't know what I'm reading. I don't do any research. I, don't, I have no information. I often get things wrong. So I don't know much about Mary Shelley, but let's just assume like she picked, you know, she's a feminist. So it's interesting being in her mind or attempting to be in her mind to understand what she's thinking about the character of Safi. Much more interesting than what she's thinking about Felix who's just acting like a rapscallion, as far as I'm concerned. He may be kind. He may be considerate, okay? He may may have initially started to do things for noble reasons, but as soon as he got a sniff of a young maiden, he's like, well, you know, it might be nice to get some reward for this. He's a rapscallion. 
I'm sorry he is. Uh, look, I, you know, you, you can't go on J-Date, Felix, to find a nice lady. You can't go on J-Date to find yourself a nice Jewish girl. You have to ransom. You have to, you have to get a girl as ransom. It's not right. It's not right, Mary. I'm just wondering what Mary thinks of all of this in her telling of the tale. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's, there's just so much to think about here. So Felix frees the dad, okay? Tries to get, you know, warns her, his father and his sister, like, you know, shit's about to go down. They're cool with it for some reason. They get arrested, which is a whole other crazy thing. Like the father and the sister get arrested for the crimes of the kid. They get thrown in jail because he's on the lam. He gets word of that. You know, I'm just recounting the plot here, but it's all so bizarre. And I'm not sure how it relates to anything that has come before. It's like a standalone movie. Honestly, it's a more compelling story than what we've, what, what we've witnessed to this point. I mean, yeah, you cobble together a big buddy out of dead people. That's interesting. And that's, that's a fun story. And we like that. And maybe the monster, you know, and, and then we, and then it asks the obvious question, well, who really is the monster? Okay, that's fun. We like that too. But then you have this heist, this caper, this love, uh, kind of a triangle between Felix, the dad, and Safi playing out across the entire continent in about five and a half pages. Like she can, like Mary Shelley can clearly tell a tale. She tells this whole tale in about five and a half pages, but it's taken her 150 pages to get to this tale. So what's going on? Which story would you rather read? Which movie would you rather see? Because there's, there's big questions wrapped up in this little story within the story. Big questions about women's roles in the culture and in different cultures, women's agency and senses of self. There's big questions about what our obligations are to justice, personal justice, governmental justice. Big questions about sacrifice and the nobility of sacrifice. Big questions, honestly, about class. Because to this point, what we knew about that trio living there in that hovel in Germany. I, I, I thought they were in the Alps, but they're in Germany. The German Alps? Are the Alps in Germany too? Or are they just in Switzerland? I don't know. But in Germany. What, we're, what we thought and what I, what, what I, there was a simplicity and a nobility to them and a love between them that is somehow to me undermined, deeply undermined, I think, by the fact of their previous station in life. Feels like a blind spot to me in Mary Shelley's writing because it suggests that the commoner, and we've seen a lot of commoners to this point, what do they do? They throw stones at the big buddy. They shriek in terror at the sight of him. They have a coarseness about them. They are peasants and have a peasant mentality a sensationalist mentality, a fearsome, loathing mentality. And then we meet these other commoners and we look at them and we go, well, see, here's the better part of humanity, right? They're loving, they care for each other, they play music, they read books, they tend the vegetable gardens, they work hard. Well, it turns out they're not commoners at all. They're from the elite class. They're from the elite merchant class. And they're the first people other than Walton, elite class, Frankenstein, elite class. They're the first people we meet in this book who we think are not of that class. Mary Shelley, elite class. And it turns out that, you know, they're one percenters just like the rest of them. 
Why couldn't they be commoners? Why shouldn't they be commoners? It seems to me they should be. I think it hurts the story. It's a good story. I mean, this part of the story is exciting. Listen to me. I'm enervated. I'm all flush. Ooh, this Georgianologist is all flush. Mary, Mary, hand me a mint julep. I'm flush. Like it's exciting, this tale of intrigue. But it's strange, deeply strange in an already strange tale. And it doesn't really follow the chapter that came before. The big buddy has been saying, like, I'm going to get to the cool part of the story. I'm going to get there. Just hold on a second. Let me get there, right? But first, I'm going to ask these deep questions of identity, these existential questions, which are compelling. Sure. And now I'll tell you the kind of cool part of the story. He tells it, but it doesn't seem to have a relationship to the previous part, not only of the story as a whole, but it has. it seems to have no sort of causal relationship with the immediate story that preceded it, other than it's just a big buddy relating what he heard. And the letter, he's got the letters to prove it. So I don't know. I'm very curious to see where all of this goes and whether it was necessary for the tale of the big buddy to be told. Because the big buddy has already learned so much from these people. Why do we need this complicated, as I say, deeply bizarre backstory for the story to progress. I guess we'll find out next time on another truly bizarre episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein was produced by myself, Michael Ian Black, Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, and Mary Shimkin. It was recorded in the wilds of Connecticut at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Theme music by Craig Wedrin. If you would like to support this podcast, please join us at patreon.com slash Black. This is a podcast that does not receive any outside funding other than the funding that you yourself give it. So if you would like to support it, please do. Patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.